Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Welcome to Out to Lunch, the podcast where intriguing people come out for a meal with me at a restaurant of my choosing. I order lots of food and wine and charm them until they tell me their worldly secrets because I've always found restaurant tables to be a fantastic place to tease out confessionals. Perusing today's menu with me is a Member of Parliament I've long had a lot of respect for. It's the witty and tell-it-like-it-is MP for Birmingham Yardley, Jess Phillips. I've got to give out awards at a school in my constituency later, but I can think. I think I can probably drink. I'll be fine by yeah. then. <laughs> this week's restaurant for out to lunch is on Charlotte Street, just north of Oxford Street, and it's called the Ninth. And it's called the Ninth because it is Jun Tanaka's ninth restaurant. It's the ninth restaurant he's worked in, but it's definitely his. When I reviewed this place, what really struck me was the boost of flavour on every single plate but mostly the lack of ponce. Is that a fair word to use? I think it is. And I thought, what a better place to bring somebody like Jess Phillips MP who is pretty much the embodiment of down to earth. Should we get inside? Oh, Jess! Hello. Hello. We're ready for you. It's a pleasure to meet you. Mwah. Mwah. A pleasure to meet you. And um, so Jess, I have to ask you, you once said you thought you'd met posh people but then you realised you'd only met people who eat olives. So you've Would you like olives? olives? <laughs> it's true, though. That is the height of poshness. Do you think? Olives? Not now, I don't Not think now. So. Now, you know, there's re- <laughs> regular references to you and olives. Jacob, Reese Mogg, being, oh, yeah. like, being like that. My fingers are kind of, you know, and they crossed <laughs> over each other. I wonder if he wouldn't do this because he refuses to be filmed when he's eating. Does he? Mm-hmm. He's not wrong, actually. Because mm, you, look, you look like Well, weird. photographs of you being filmed are really dodgy. Mm. I won't have that done. I think maybe Ed Miliband-Gate. Do you think? Taught him a lesson. I use that picture of the bacon sandwich in a show that I do. Let's talk food, first of all. OK. This is Peter who's going to be serving us. Hello, Peter. Nice to meet you. <laughs> it's essentially a sharing place, isn't it? It's a concept, it? yes. So the, the way menu is designed, normally we recommend six places to share between two people. The snacks are more like cannibals, so you can have them while you're having your drinks. Mm-hmm. Then salad, pasta, throwing pure at the starter size portion, fish and the more substantial dishes, and the vegetables are more like the sides. You can feed me whatever you uh, All right, so there's, there's I, nothing. The only thing I don't like about Will Eat because I'm, I was raised polite is sweet corn. <laughs> OK, that's... Uh, <laughs> no, 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 is there anything with sweet corn in it? Yes, we have, so there's... Um, <laughs> I'll eat it, because I'm polite. Yeah. So it's a crispy rabbit, sweet, yeah. sweet corn, and oatmeal risotto. OK, we'll get rid of that. I will definitely eat that. The second one will be charred sweet corn salsa. OK, well, we can, we can avoid the char-grilled sweet corn salsa, but I'm tempted just because you raised it, and yeah. I, want, I want to see you go through your, 
politeness. Good manners and politeness. But also, I can eat sweet corn if it's hidden in things, like a samosa. It's fine. I've got to give out awards at a school in my constituency later, but I can think. I think I can probably drink. I'll be fine by then. Do you like? (laughs) Do you like a glass of fizz of some kind? I mean, I feel like terribly rude, but yeah, I will. That'll be nice. Yeah. Oh, white please. White. Yeah. So, can we get two of the pork belly? One of the burrata peas and pickle artichokes. Langoustine ravioli. The whole sea bass. The rabbit, because that makes me laugh. <laughs> Marinated scallops. Scallops. The crispy potatoes. Potatoes. How are we doing? That all looks uh, amazing. Would you like to go for one more vegetable? Yeah, Maybe what about the roast seps? The seps with frigola and crispy shallots. That's mushrooms. Yeah. Yeah. You're looking slightly baffled. Like this isn't your normal Tuesday. It's not mine either. Just, to, just to help you. No, I, don't, I, don't. I think it is my normal Tuesday. Obviously, the bafflement is not yeah. the food or the environment. Because yeah. I don't want it to, you know, sort of pretend that I don't eat in nice restaurants or anything like that, or know anything about food because I do. It's just. You know, when people are offering you things, the sort of politeness in me. My mum used to make me, whenever you went to anybody's house, you, as you left, you had to repeat the sentence like a robot. We must do this again except at my house. Um, <laughs> No-one ever took me up on that offer Did as a not? seven-year-old. Oh, yes, I'd love to come round. What are you going to make? I once had lunch with a, a quite senior Labour politician and she, right at the beginning, said, ''Ooh, I, I don't normally like to do this kind of thing if it's not got value.'' Oh, no, I'm not fussed about that. <laughs> Good. <laughs> I thought knowing how to have a nice time is important. Well, I think it's fine to go out and eat nice dinners and do nice things and know about nice food. I don't feel the need to pretend that, you know, I grew up in sackcloth and ashes or anything like that. I think it's really patronising to the people where I come from as well. You have a rich history in delicious food and migration, which breeds delicious food. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Also, if you went up to anyone in my constituency and said, do you want to go out for a nice posh dinner that you don't have to pay for? <laughs> you know, they would you be think, like, uh, they'd be in there. <laughs> they'd be in there. Definitely be in there. Getting to Parliament, you, mm-hmm. you went in at... Remind me which 2015. Like, 2015. So just it was like ages ago. Yeah, it's only four years. I know. I mean, well, it has been so on the extraordinary. You have. You were, you were, <laughs> when you went, when you went in, was it a disappointment then? Were those first few weeks yeah. a real disappointment? Well, it's a bit overwhelming when you first go in. I'd only been in the building, I think, once, maybe twice before. So I was a bit overwhelmed at first. But yes, actually, I found a number of things quite disappointing. The sense of working together in common cause with all sorts of different people. I mean, obviously, the Labour Party was going through a bit of a difficult time at the time I went in as well. Um, Thank God that's all over. (laughs) We sure have bottomed that right out. Haven't you? Um, The thing that shocked me was, yeah, the... It's sort of women were as a bit of a box-checking exercise for the then-government, which was then headed up by old David Cameron. They basically did it to shut people like me up, that they didn't really care or or understand. And the worst thing is, is that you get treated, if you go in and you've got, like, a common accent, like I have, and you're a woman... You've got a common accent, you've just got a regional accent. I I know I've just got a regional accent, but if you're David Cameron and you've only ever met people... Have you come far? (laughs) Exactly. What does your husband do, people kept saying to me, and I just was like, he loves me? I don't know why you're asking me what he does. He's a lift engineer, do you have a broken lift? Um, you might be able to help. 
And to be fair, they're always breaking in Parliament. Are they? Yep, I blame his people. What I was shocked by was the way that they could talk down and ignore, actually, people like me and sort of treat you a little bit like this is the common thing that they say it's not student politics is the derisory thing that Tory MPs will say to you now you have you, you've got a new book out Truth uh-huh. to Power mm-hmm. um, Seven Ways to Call Time on BS what does BS bullshit. does it thank you did you want to put bullshit word, on the yeah. cover I would have just written the word yeah but. what I'm interested in is how you got here how you got to the person who writes this book when you were growing up in Birmingham mm-hmm. You've described it, you say your dad was like Jeremy Corbyn. Well, I mean, he makes Jeremy Corbyn look like Tony Blair. Really? Uh, yeah, so my parents are re- like were ridiculously activist, you know. All the campaigns would be run out of our house. So we used to have, like, a women's group that ran from our house, so there was always, like, women wailing about something in the living room. Bam the Bomb, Greenham Common. I remember having to make... Out of handprints, like, ban the bomb signs. Reading around and reading you, and even now talking to you, you give the sense of almost being a slight wry outsider. Oh, God, do I have to stick my hands in the bloody paint again? It was a bit like... Uh, every single event that you is ever in your life was organised by the Labour Party, whether it was a babysitting circle was organised by the Labour Party, or that we'd be taken, it'd be a really fun afternoon and you'd realise you'd been taken to a balloon release about peace. And uh, <laughs> envelope stuffing. I mean, every single night you'd be watching the TV and you'd have to sit and envelopes, stuff envelopes. As for- a kid, I got paid for that. Oh, my gosh. We used to sometimes get paid in stationery. So Did my you... mum would take us into work and say, let these out. So, which actually now is just stealing stationery <laughs> from our work, I realised. Was that the breakfast table conversation? In oh, absolutely. Like, we would sit around, because there, was, there wasn't just my family. My granddad lived with us, and also we had a ramshackle group of people who would come and live in our house for a variety of reasons. Some of those were, you know, they'd come from domestic violence situations. or. And your mum took them in? Your parents took them in? Yeah, our parents took them in. Was Oh, look, so we've got bread and we have a little bit of... Oh, excellent. Brown sauce. Brown sauce. You've, you've basically got there, like... Yeah, I know. Pork escalops in brown sauce. Oh, yeah. I love it. Yeah. It's, uh, they'll have made their own brown sauce, of course. But... <laughs> well, they used to make it in Birmingham. <laughs> Is HP no longer made in Birmingham? No, I think it's in Holland. Mm. Delicious. That's quite good, isn't it? Mm. Um... Pig fat, it's the best thing on earth. All right. So where do you stand on pork scratchings, Jess? Love them. Absolutely love them. Always most preferred snack in a pub. Oh, my God, the salty butter is delicious. It's so salty. It's like that stuff you get in France that it's like where you have to cut through and it's crunchy. Yeah, and then there's a slightly cheesy end to it. Oh, so good. I've got some of that in my fridge at the moment. God, this is shit, isn't it? Mmm... Famous story of you going to Glastonbury and jumping mm-hmm. over the fence, mm-hmm. breaking your ankle. Break my ankle. Still broken today, never fixed properly. Really? Yeah, so it breaks all the time. So it's broken, I think, broken about five times since. Because I didn't do anything about it because I wanted to go to Glastonbury. So I didn't go to the hospital or anything. And, and since then, you haven't thought maybe I should get a pin put in this? Oh, I have done, yeah. Like the <laughs> other times, it. it's broken. But they sort of say there's very little we can do. The fix, the, the where the fracture is, there's not much that they can do. And actually, I can't. And it's sort of like, well, it will just heal until it breaks again. And for me to take it, the time out to go and have elective surgery, yeah. it's just not a possibility. So j- just to deal with that anecdote, were you utterly off your tits? I mean, what, what happened? Oh, no. I was breaking in, I don't think. Once I got over the wall, 
I remember going to um, Bestival. I did pay to go to that when it used to be on the Isle of Wight. Mm. And I was pregnant with my son Harry, but I didn't know. And they wouldn't let me take in. Um, um, I, it's the only time I think I've actually been off my face going into a festival. Um, but they wouldn't let me take in this bottle of gin I'd taken, so I sort of started to neck it. But I didn't know I was pregnant with my son until, like, three weeks later. I mean, but he is fine. Have you t- <laughs> not that you'd recommend it, please, <laughs> please drink responsibly. Yeah, don't yeah, we're, do that. We're not recommending Jess Phillips... <laughs> yeah, maternity <laughs> advice. Maternity advice as a, um, as a way forward. But everybody broke into glass. I mean, nobody paid... I mean, when I was... When I was a teenager and we always used to get on a coach, I don't even know, or into random people's cars, I didn't know anyone who'd ever paid for a ticket. So I just thought the deal was that you gave a fiver to a Liverpudlian with a ladder. <laughs> oh, some more food is arriving. Oh, so. but none of us ate the cabbage of this. Like, I, I know, like... but, well, they put pig on the... They only put the cabbage there to make us think that it was good for us. Somebody like the scallops? You got some shelby, scallops. Pickle, kohlrabi and dashi. They're called what? Kohlrabi. Is it like a root? Yes. Yes. I feel like I'm on a quiz. Burrata with pickled artichoke, fresh and mint oil. Amazing. I'm all right with this. I'm not going on that. Damn, talking too much. No, I'm fine. Thank you. What great job you have. So would you like some burrata? Yeah, I literally love burrata. With burrata, peas, pickled artichokes and a mint oil. Now, I used to say that I didn't like peas because I don't like... A bit like sweet corn. I don't like just like a wedge of peas on the side of your plate like a dinner in the 80s. You know, like, we used to have burgers, but not in a bun. In the 80s, that was massive. Like, you just get like a a burger, but not a bun, just on the side of your plate with chips and peas. Were were your parents good cooks? Amazingly good, although I'm not making them sound like they were now. My mum didn't cook much because she was working most of the time, but my dad was a brilliant cook because my dad had taught in... um, Hansworth in Birmingham for years and years. One Sikh man had uh, taught him to cook loads of Indian food. And some of the mums had come in and taught him to cook. So my dad both speaks a fairly passable Punjabi and also can cook amazing Indian food. Yeah. Well, there are quite a lot of you to feed, which meant that there would have been a strong period when you were all round the table. Oh, yeah, a long period when we were all round the table. We have a, had to have a round table. To fit us all round. My main memory of my family is those sort of rows around the table. And we used to have a table that had like a shelf underneath it where we'd put the food we didn't like. Oh, really? Just leave it to rot. But everybody knew it was there. Yeah. And then someone would come round and clean <laughs> it up. Clean it up, yeah. Way after the my event. My nan on a Thursday when she'd come round and boil. She would always peel potatoes, like a sink full of potatoes, whether we were going to eat potatoes or not. Because there'd, there'd be a need for them at some <laughs> yeah, point. Yeah, you know, the, you don't see that so much more. People scraping potatoes. My nan scraped potatoes, I'm going to say, for at least 20 years of her life under a cold tap. It's quite satisfying and mindful. Do you know yeah, what I mean? We call mindfulness it mindfulness now. now. Yeah, it'd be but like for, adult colouring. Yeah. <laughs> We're all colouring in, but because <laughs> because they started washing potatoes at source and there was no need to scrub yeah, them anymore. Yeah, my nan, I don't know how she'd cope now in this modern time without potatoes to scrub. One of the defining bits in your biography is uh, the planned pregnancy of your first child. Yes. Or not, as the not, case. Not, not planned at all. Totally You were 22? Planned. 22 when I got pregnant with Harry, yes. Um, with a, a lad you'd known for... No, I'd known him for a long time. I'd just been going out with him for... I'd known him since, you know, he was a kid. We grew up together, like... I say grew up together, like, he lived around the corner and we hung out smoking in the park and doing ollies on a schedule. Was there ever any doubt? I mean, it always seems a bit strange to discuss your lovely eldest son, who is, I think, uh, 14. 14. Mm -hmm. 
of not? Of not having him? Yeah. Of course. So my, it's funny, every time I found that I was pregnant, um, I have known the decision I was going to make about that pregnancy literally the second I saw the result on the pregnancy test. And I have had an abortion, so I have made the decision not to have a child. So actually with Harry, funnily enough, I knew that I wanted to have him. I pretended to have doubts on behalf so that my husband could help, could, he wasn't my husband then, but so that Tom could take part in the decision. Well, that's very kind of you. <laughs> Oh, Thank you. That's delicious. very beautiful, isn't it? Mm, Shall I give you the man. full description so you know yeah, everything? Yeah. Uh, Romanesco, which is the green cabbage, and uh, Datterini tomatoes, and there's a broth in there. Which... What's Datterini about them? Is that a place where they've come from? Italy. 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 Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, Peter. Yeah. The defining moment is always said to be the point where you joined Women's Aid. Uh-huh. Do you see it that way? Yeah. I think so. How did that happen? How did you come together? Explain what Women's Aid is for that. So, well, Women's Aid is a national federation that supports victims of domestic abuse. So, I I know it's a bit (laughs) naff to come off that, but bloody hell, langoustine, uh, ravioli. (laughs) Right, back to domestic abuse. Delicious, nothing like ravioli from a tin, which is also delicious. So lots of people think mistakenly that I work for a big national charity. I didn't. I work for the local federated um, organisation that was direct um, service provider to victims of domestic and sexual violence. And I just applied for a job there as a PA to the chief executive. I mean, you worked your way up very quickly, didn't you? Oh, yeah, I did work my way up really quickly. I suppose three years, and I was one of the senior managers at the organisation. I mean, you said it's all, you know, you'd always been part of this... Women's movement, M- yeah. Women's movement. Yeah, definitely. But this is a point when you get seriously involved. Because you went all the way to the United Nations. I did. You had to tell this story. <laughs> I mean, I went to the United Nations in the crossover to becoming a member of Parliament, so... And I was with Madeleine... I spoke after Madeleine Albright, who... So Madeleine Albright was your... Basically introduced was me. Was your supporter. Yeah. Um, Madeleine Albright is so small that she has a box that she stands on. And uh, when I said, I really like your box, and she said she used to feel nervous about it, but she thinks that Sarkozy had one too. <laughs> My Madeleine uh, Albright story. Madeleine Albright was the Secretary of State under Clinton. First, first ever yeah. woman secretary in America. And she, she famously said, there's a special place in hell for women who don't help other women. And I ended up advising the government all the time. So you'd get called into the Home Office when they were developing the modern slavery bill. You'd what, get called what was it like in. walking through the doors of the Home Office for the first time? Well, it's quite security-driven, so it's a bit annoying, <laughs> uh, mainly. But... Uh, I was hoping for something a little more romantic. Oh, sorry. Frankly, Jess, um, if you want to talk about beautiful. the metal detectors, that's fine. Um, well, I think that the first time you go there, it is... Like, you can't believe that these people are asking you for advice when you're from, like, a little provincial part of the... It's not even Birmingham. This was about the black country. And so we'd have all these politicians come look round refuge and stuff, and sometimes they'd have to give me the day off because I couldn't be trusted not to shout <laughs> Theresa May, on the day she came, I wasn't allowed to go to work. Genuinely? Yeah, I was kept off work. Like, you know, naughty kids, if Ofsted are coming in, go to Blackpool or something. It was it's a bit like that. I mean, looking back, do you think it was a reasonable uh, HR decision I think to keep Jess Phillips out of the office? I might have been a candidate. I think I might have been the candidate for the election at the time. So at that, oh. they might have thought, actually, this is too much. But most of the other Tories, they would let me meet. I remember Eric Pickles coming. And I remember, so Eric Pickles and David Cameron came to a youth thing that we were part of. 
I remember David Cameron went to visit the hospital where my mum... Uh, it was in the 2010 general election. It was the first time we'd ever had leaders' debates, wasn't it? And my mum was dying in hospital at the QE, and the first one was at Birmingham University. And so they came round and said, oh, Cameron's going to come and walk... So he wasn't the Prime Minister, he's going to come and walk round. And my mum was like, I'm already fucking dying. <laughs> I don't need this shit. Like, you know, I've been through enough this year. Keep David Cameron away from me. There's a bit of scallop in there. You have to take that last bit of scallop. In Birmingham, the word scallop and the Midlands wide means a piece of fried potato. It's kind of a cheap fish cake. I mean, it's well, it's just a piece. It's just a scallop of potato battered, battered, um, dropped in the deep fat. And it cost like it used to cost like eleven pence. So if you couldn't afford a cone of chips, you'd have a scallop. But um, I remember talking to someone about it and them thinking, "Oh, that's really posh that you've had scallops in your fish and chip shop." And then I realised they thought I was talking about those. It's like that famous story, which is unfairly uh, attributed to to Mandelson. Well, it wasn't Mandelson; it was his American intern. Mm. It was the American intern who goes, "I'll have some of the guacamole," but. uh, it was mushy a, peas. In, it, it, it was mushy peas. In Hartlepool. In Hartlepool. Everybody mm. said it was Mandelson, but it wasn't. But it's a good story, it's isn't a good story. it? And why so get the let's truth? Keep, yeah, <laughs> why let the truth get in the way of a good so story? So I've written a book about speaking truth, but, you know, when a good story is uh, coming along, that's more important. You're clearly liking this bread. You're, this you're, bread is delicious. Tom, your other half, makes sourdough, doesn't he? He does, he makes sourdough. But also, if he buys a cheap loaf from the um, supermarket... I like uh, one that has gone soft. He will just plunge it in water and then bake it and it goes crispy on the outside. There you go. Some tips for you. Top bread tips. Yeah. Are you ever expected to look after the mother to care for the the thing that... Oh, uh, yeah, the horrible thing. Yeah. What's it called, the starter? Mm. No, I can't be trusted. I can't keep plants alive. I wouldn't be trusted with the starter. But the other day, he also makes pizza every week and the pizza dough, you have to include a bit of last week's pizza dough in it. And it just keeps on going forever. And I managed to in, mix that in the dough under very strict instructions on the telephone to make the pizza dough in the morning because he'd forgotten to do it before he left the house. So I have managed to put old dough in new dough. <laughs> Muzzle top, as my people say. <laughs> Quoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Eventually you start standing for elective office. Mm-hmm. Councillor first. Yeah. And then obviously... MP. Yeah. Why? Well, so, I mean, like all things, like, why do I do anything? It's because somebody asks me to. Um, so I considered... At the point when I'm at Women's Aid, I'd start to decide that I think that I w- should try and get to Westminster 
Are you um, already suddenly yeah, thought? I thought, well, because I'm going to the Home Office quite a lot and I'm giving them advice <laughs> and you're advising people, the Ministry of Justice, and you're doing all this stuff. And you start to think, oh, you know, actually, wouldn't it be better if people like me actually were in there doing it at source? What, generally because the people you were seeing doing it, you thought, were uh, yeah. not fit for purpose? Terrible. I mean, mainly Chris Grayling, when he was the Secretary of State for Justice. Isn't his career amazing? It's I mean, it's it. gone now, but it could come back It'll again. come back. Do you think? You can always rely on Grayling. Well, a bit like herpes, it's never yeah. really... <laughs> He was the Justice Secretary and I was setting up a female offenders service at the same time here, so he was privatising the probation service. Uh, when I met him, I literally... I was just like, you've never met a person, let alone a prisoner. He didn't seem to know anything about the prison system. And I worked in and out of the prison system as part of my job and I just was like, oh, my God, how did you get where you are? So he is the person I put down to, like, losing my imposter syndrome. When did that go? Because this new book, Speaking Truth to Power, which is kind of a handbook for people people to to do it, it, basically a statement of someone who's gone, I can do this and so can you. Yeah, well, I think it was Chris Grayling. I mean, I don't like to dedicate my entire career to him, but... um... Well, no, no, if we can come up up with something positive that Chris Grayling has done, then that's all to the good. Yeah, that's it, that's true. Um... What was the reaction of your parents who'd been for so long... Yeah, so uh, my my mum uh, had died before um, I was ever elected to any office. Right, okay. But I told her that I was thinking of standing uh, to be on Birmingham City Council just before she died. And she said to me, the thing is, Bab, is it won't be hard to shine on Birmingham City Council. <laughs> <laughs> so I've held that dear to me. Oh, no, <laughs> and your dad? My dad, I think he was always really quietly supportive, but my dad is classic cynic my dad was always sort of quietly proud but never really really like encouraging has there, ever, has there come a moment since where he said you know what jess you did um, the thing he says it to other people all the time well, like nice. people like my auntie sue will be like your dad's so proud of you my auntie pat will ring me mm. like oh god he's just he talks about nothing else so i know he's really proud of me but to me he's always like i think you went too far on that, or you've got to be really careful that you don't swear too much. She's always telling me oh, to stop swearing that. while oh. saying fucking stupid cow to me. Yeah, I mean, he's, he's definitely proud of me. My new book is dedicated to him. Indeed. And when I gave it to him, he just went, mm-hmm. <laughs> like nodded in the sort of, okay, sort of way. And my kids did. They were like, whatever. Really? Bastards. Oh, no. I mean, literally in one of their cases. <laughs> <laughs> Which they, I'm sure you've told him already. Well, the younger one who was... Well, you go, oh, you were, you were planned, yeah, the, but you were just a mistake. The younger one that was born of matrimony reminds yeah. the one that wasn't, that he wasn't all the time. You're a bastard, you can't have a go at me because it's only factually correct. <laughs> <laughs> ego, though, to actually do what you do... You have to have an ego. There's absolutely no two ways about that. And any politician who claims not to have an ego is, you know, it's not. You have to genuinely keep on pushing yourself to put yourself forward at lots and lots of different stages. It isn't just one stage. It is at every single stage during an election. So, like each time you have to stand for election and or selection or stand to be on a committee, you have to constantly try and find faith in yourself. And then you have to go out to people and ask them to have faith in you. And sell yourself. So it would be incredibly hard to do if you genuinely didn't like yourself a bit Mm. and thought you were the right person for the job. So when you get into the House of Commons, Mm -hmm. did you then discover, 
a, a big place full of 650 egos. screaming egos. Uh, no, I mean, no, not really. There are some people who are have got massive egos, no two ways about it. But in the House, funnily enough, there's something about Parliament, the building, that quashes people, that squashes their... It's bigger than you and it's been around a lot longer and that... I think some of the rules, which I think a lot of them are ridiculous, but some of the rules do sort of... They hem people in a little bit to stop some of that happening. There are obviously people with big egos, and within the party there are people with big egos. My favourite story about this, to have the foresight and ego to do this is amazing, is that Gerard Kaufman, who was the father of the House just after I was elected... So the longest-serving ever ever male MP at at that point, was the father of the House... And Gerald Kaufman, he'd been an MP... I think he was elected on the same day as Ken Clark in 1970, so bearing in mind, he's been there 35 years at this point, that he ran on his first day to make sure he was in the queue first when at the swearing-in, so that in that year of MPs, he, would be, he would be the father of the House. So he had the foresight to think... 35 years ahead and think, I'll beat Ken Clark. He became the father of the house and died like six months later and then Ken Clark got to be it anyway. Um, But, you know, so there is... On the first day there, there are already people who are there because they think that they've got leadership written all over them. We have an amazing-looking whole sea bass dish. No, see, this is the kind of thing that I would never order. Also as Adria potatoes, which is like sort of patata bravas. Uh Tomato sauce and the garlic I would never order a whole drink. fish because I'm, I'm... It's not that I'm squeamish about it. I'm not squeamish about it at all. But I just worry that I won't know what to do with it. Well, it looks to me... Is, is it... Like I think you yeah. can... Uh, Peter, we're going to let you fill it this. Would you fill it yourself? I could probably do a reasonable job, but he's going to do a hell of a lot better than I would. OK, I definitely couldn't fill it. It'll be brilliantly cooked, so it will come off the bone. OK, all right, I feel less like I'm a loser. Don't quite think, <laughs> Jess Phillips, what a loser is a phrase that ever comes to anybody's mind. Well, you've not seen me in a fish restaurant. Yeah. A few more small balls, so please be careful. I'll tell you what, I'm going to serve you. Yeah, because uh, I don't even think I could manage that. Can we just be clear, this isn't patriarchy, this is just convenient. <laughs> just, no, yeah. Exactly. Shall I throw some of the, the mussels on there as well? Yeah, thank you. Um, Mule. You, you've described how you've made close friends in the house. Yeah. West Streeting, you've described as your House of Commons husband. He's my House of Commons husband. Him and Pete Kyle, we have a House of Commons three-way. So what form does this uh, marital, House of Commons marital bliss take? We always make sure that the other one's all right and and add add the dinner and things. Really? So we eat together in the evenings because we're stuck in the house. So you will properly sit down and have a dinner together. um, Like you would with your family. You easily couldn't. Oh, yeah, you could, you could quite easily, and then you end up just eating crap. So there's about sort of seven or eight of us, and we always make sure that we meet up for dinner. But also, like, they're the people... You, you often need names for things in the House of Commons. Like, you're, I need to put something in quickly, and I need people's names on the bill. And they, you can go to them. You can go to them, and they know that they don't even need to look at it. Just total trust. Jess wouldn't make me be signing something that basically said right. that, you know, I, hate, I hated all Italians or anything. It's not you don't need to worry. So you need those people, and you need them to have a broad brush of interests because <laughs> then you're, you, you've got somewhere to go when you're like, oh, about this education policy or this to do with whatever... West Streeting has been very... One of the the MPs has been very outspoken about Labour and Mm anti-Semitism. 
Has that informed you on that subject, or is that your own? Did you need anybody to inform you on that? Not especially, but um, hold on, I've got a bone in my. Throat. Have you? There we go. The anti-Western feeling that somehow Israel has become the absolute pinnacle of sort of it's fine to criticise is not something that I was unused to hearing from childhood. I've been hearing that all, all my life. What bothers me now is how that seems to have come out the other side as hatred of Jewish people, but it has, and I see it all the time, I experience it all the time. People deny the Holocaust to me, and people think that I'm making it up, but people that... I had an email from someone saying, oh, the Jews and their so-called Holocaust. So-called? So-called. I mean, it's... um. From my perspective, I've been a Labour voter all my life until very recent elections because I'm Jewish and I've received enormous amounts of anti-Semitic abuse from, from the left. And I can't... I can't vote Labour at the moment. I'm not... I mean, as a Jewish person, you know, I... <laughs> I'm, I'm not surprised to hear it at all. Um, it's very distressing. You of know, course, feel, because, feel, you know... homeless in many ways. Yeah, and I think political homelessness to, is a really important thing, especially if you've been politically active all of your life. It's easy to solve. That's what bothers me about it. Why hasn't it been solved? Um, I think that they are squeamish about upsetting some of their base. I think that they are frightened to be seen in any way to be in favour of is like genuinely the the terrible the, what, they can't mix separate that the they two cannot things. separate the two things and it just drives me mad because I am totally pro Palestinian have been there many times etc etc I don't hate Jewish people it's as simple as that I I'm incredibly pro um, individual recognition of Kashmir I don't hate Indian people and nobody it's funny that that never happens the problem Isn't in it? Kashmir. And as somebody who represents a very, very, very heavily Kashmiri diaspora, yeah. no one ever that Preet Gill doesn't, you know, who's an Indian member of Parliament, nobody assumes that her loyalty is with India. It's ridiculous. Um, it so- is extraordinary. I mean, my own suspicion is there are just too many people in the leader's office oh, who God. basically think some of those things. Yes. Yeah. No, that's definitely true. <laughs> Yeah, no, you're right. And I think that there is a worry that if they don't allow a lot of nuance rather than just, like, having, like, a you're out, one strike and you're out, although I think it has got a bit better, just to defend them slightly, is that it will take out some of theirs. Yeah. That's the problem. So there is a defensive mechanism about it. On three occasions that I've seen, you've talked about ripping up your card and leaving the party oh, yeah. and, and moving to another party. and You've not done it. no. I mean, it, it, has it been a mistake but each that, time but, you've said it or have you meant it each no, time no, you've no, said it? No, 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 I mean it each time I say it. I'm a flighty sort, what can I say? But there is no political party I could go to. I couldn't go to the Lib Dems, for example. Yeah, why not? Just out of interest. I mean, my Lib, Lib Dems all over the country are a different sort of breed. And so where I live, Liberal Democrat councillors and Liberal Democrat, the Liberal Democrat Member of Parliament whose seat I took in the election mm. are some of the most abhorrent people I have ever come across in my life. They will be being silent on Brexit. Not very courageous, I'm afraid to say, in lots of examples, utterly crap with women. Utterly crap. Terrible history of the, what they did with sexual harassment in the party. And where I live, 
I don't see it hear any vocal uh, support of my stance on the LGBT row, for example, from my local Liberal Democrats, because they know that it feathers their nest otherwise. And also, it's not born out of struggle. There is something that about the Labour Party, and because it's my family and I grew up with it and all that jazz, I need to be fighting and in a struggle, not just existing with hope. There needs, There is an element of my politics that needs to have friction involved in it. And the Liberal Democrats, it's all just a little bit like, ooh, let's be friends. But... You know, the anti-Semitism thing is the single thing that will make me leave. This anti-Semitism and sexual harassment. But if I don't start to see some of the fruition of very, very long-winded cases that I have been involved with from the beginning, going in the right direction, then, yeah. But my attitude is is that the Labour Party's sexual harassment policies and the Labour Party's anti-Semitism policies don't get better by people like me leaving. They get worse. And I feel like you I sound have... like you're genuinely conflicted at this. Point. Oh, totally conflicted. I'm totally conflicted. I don't want to be a member of a racist party. Um, I don't want to be accused of being an anti-Semite. Um, I don't. I don't want to prop up anti-Semites at all. Um, but that's you know. There's lots of us that feel that way, and people like me and West Streeting spend huge amounts of our lives and hours of our time trying to improve the processes and doing the actual work. We're not just out on telly slagging them off. We're in hours and hours and hours of meetings. We're helping represent people in their cases. Mm. If I thought it was unsavable, and if they got into power, if Labour got into power and acted the big in and was like, oh, we can do what we like now, people like me not being there would just allow them to do that, wouldn't it? Can we talk about the, what it is to be you as an MP? <laughs> You talk about, you know, your alarm going off and worrying that instead of turning off the alarm on your phone, you're going to hit the panic button. Yeah. You live with a panic button. I don't live with a panic button. Got loads, mate. You've got a, um, you've got a panic, a panic room in your constituency. <laughs> Do you have a, something on you now? I think so, if I've got it in my bag. I'm very uh, ill-disciplined about taking it with me, but I'm, I should have, yeah. And what does that do? It has a GPS so that it can tell where I am at any point. And when they? Do you mean the police? Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, you've had... Death threats, you've had... Lots of death threats. Awful lot of rape threats. And, it happens and, and, a lot. Your, and your own boys have asked you, is it worth it? Yeah. So, but I'm going to do it as well. Is it worth it? It definitely is worth it, because for all the people who I have worked with who haven't just had rape and death threats, some of them have lost their family members and been raped. And it's worth it that they have a voice in Parliament and it's worth... It's like... Um, Parliament is like an enormous loud hailer and all the things that I have been saying or thinking for all those years that might improve the world now when I say them people listen and that is I mean it's a it's headily intoxicating as well as being a force for good so it's totally worth it if the boys said I do. Well, they do. Yeah, they do. And, and so, well, not the old one. He doesn't talk to me anymore. But um. oh, no, he'll be back in a couple of years. <laughs> oh, I look forward to it. Um, that's hard, isn't it? My younger one really doesn't like me going away at the moment. But yeah, it is well, hard. Uh, but the, the I didn't like my mum going away. That's life, isn't it? I didn't. My mum worked away. I didn't like it. I mean, I don't. I, I don't know whether he's hypersensitive about it because of the threats. But and we've got to say, just to put this in, so, we, so we're not under, underestimating this. Joe Cox was murdered. Yeah. Another MP, someone you knew, was a dear friend of yours. 
And my children are friends with her children. Right. She was murdered. So this is... Even if you started to regard the person who did it as deranged, doesn't matter. Doesn't matter, yeah. He he did it for what he said were political motives. Uh, It's funny that, you you know, the the sighting of Joe Cox is the obvious and most... uh, Frightening, yeah, the most acute, element, yeah, yeah, the most acute element, and obviously the saddest for me. But what I also know about Joe and Joe's murder is that there was nothing she could have done to have stopped it. Mm. Like, there's no precaution she could have taken. If somebody had said to her, "Don't say these things about refugees because it will put you at risk," don't be pro. Yes, she would have still said it. Because that's a death. And, in fact, in the book, the Joe's case and the case of Daphne Karana Galazia, the um, Maltese journalist who was murdered... Um, she, was a, she was a campaigner against corruption. Corruption in the Maltese, in the Maltese government. government, and she was murdered. And I spoke to her certain for the book. It's a death of sorts to silence people. It's, it's not me putting me in the line of fire. It's them. So, that, I mean, that was one of the striking things about the book. It was the second chapter about right. fear and how you deal with fear. And I actually I wrote down one of the quotes. When we face initial fear of speaking up, we must dig deep and use that fear as the force that drives us. Yeah, I quite like fear, you see. I find it to be... Uh, I can't do anything unless I'm a bit scared to do it. Um, I think if I'm not scared anymore, I've probably... It's done. That thing is done uh, for me. Um, because... I think if you're frightened, that is a genuine emotion you're meant to listen to for a reason. Now, sure, you, you know, fear is there for a reason. Now, sometimes the, that fear should be used to make you run the other way, quite rightly. And do fire. You? And have you? Uh, if there was a fire, I no. would run the other well, way. Forget fire. We're talking about the threats, the, all of that no, stuff. No, I never run the other way, uh, but it doesn't mean I'm not scared. But the fact that I'm scared is the injustice, and I can feel the injustice. I can literally feel it in my chest. And so that keeps me standing up. Because if it was just like an idea that it was frightening, like I wouldn't be able to feel it. And if you're scared of something, there's probably something wrong with it. Now, if you're scared of something that's totally rational, spiders, um, then that, that is, uh, you know, that is a different thing. What I'm talking about, about this sort of fear, is if you're frightened of some, something that is controlling your life, then there's something wrong with that. Listen to that. Don't ignore it and just try and make it go away. Listen to that and try and change it because running away from it doesn't make it go away. Nothing changes, nothing. The childhood Jess Phillips uh, was planning to be Prime Minister. What's the goal now? I mean, I'd still think, let's go for Prime Minister. Yeah, fair enough. It was a good idea then. Uh, I don't think I was quite cognisant of what it would take. Uh, but, yeah, let's... Well, I mean, I just don't know why you'd be in politics if you didn't want to be the Prime Minister, because then you get to have all the power and do the things that you wanted to do without anybody being able to kick off at you. Do you think? Well, do you think that's what the job people is? People would kick you off at me. People would kick off at me, but I would just be able to say, well, I've got the votes. <laughs> do you not occasionally look at Mr Johnson? I, I refuse now to call him by his yeah, first name. No, I, I thought Alexander. He, yeah. yeah. Um, mm-hmm. um, were you looking to vape in yeah, there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is there a no vaping okay. rule? I won't blow out any smoke, I'll hold it. There you go. It's all gone. It's all gone. It's yeah, all gone. Look, She's had it a fix. Didn't, uh, it didn't, I don't ever blow anything out. I do it in the commons. <laughs> do you? 
What, in the chamber? Very rarely in the chamber, but sometimes you don't even know that you're doing... Like, it's like a dummy. You don't even know that it's happening. <laughs> the member for Yardley <laughs> yeah. appears to be smoking from the, from the back bench. You were about to feel sorry for Mr Johnson. Well, no, I... I mean, I, I am quite struck. This is a job that apparently he's wanted to do all his life. Mm. And shit at it. Isn't it? it? Well, he, he is shit at it. He's absolutely shockingly bad at I'm it. I'm not surprised that he's bad at it because I have watched him in part. He was re-elected on the same day as me, so he came back into Parliament uh, on the same day as me. Yes, because you took um, her a few years out to yeah, be mayor to of London there. and buy some water cannons. And I have watched how he has he has no it that thing I said about how Parliament squashes people it squashes him in a big way he's he's not an orator he's he, no he can't he he doesn't know how to work Parliament because his gags don't fly there uh, and funnily enough actually and that, that's you know lots of people say well that's not the be all and end all if he can speak to the country and I actually think that actually him being squashed by Parliament he's being even more squashed by Number Ten and the responsibility that he has. And that means that his shtick with the people has started to go awry as well. Because they don't want... You know, they liked him hanging from a, like, balustrade or whatever he was doing and, like, looking like a goof uh, when he was just Boris Johnson, Mayor of London. Especially people in Birmingham. I just thought, what's wrong with people in London? Why have they elected this man? Um, and... Well, well, we did have a man who kept I mean, referring to Hitler as the alternative... For the Labour Party. I am not here to defend Ken Livingstone, nor will I ever. Oh. Yeah, that was a poor choice of candidate on our part. We're responsible. I, bl- I blame Ken Livingstone for Boris Johnson. Yeah, so do I. Yeah, well, I absolutely do. So I have to ask you about somebody else in the House, famously, because people keep quoting this back to you, because it, it seems so unlikely that you've always found Jacob Rees-Mogg to be polite and yes. user-friendly and somebody yes. you can have a, a debate with and it can yeah. all be lovely. Now, I understood what you were saying. I may yeah. have found many of his views repugnant. Oh, yeah, totally. But I was always intrigued by the way he would be so calm and cool. Until Johnson becomes Prime Minister, Jacob Rees-Mogg actually has a serious position. He's now leader of the House. And uh, what's the technical... He becomes a twat. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, I'm not going, I wouldn't call him a twat because that would be impolite. Th- that would be impolite and un Rees-Moggian. Yeah, uh, but, but I, I, think, I think it has damaged him badly, actually, uh, at getting into that position because uh, I think that he thought his shtick would work there and, again, it hasn't worked. That I mean, the thing where he was lying down on the bench... Were you in the house then? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was sat next to Anna, who took the photo that is now famous. She's like, I wish I'd put some sort of copyright on that picture. <laughs> it's gone all over. She was like, I'm going to try and charge people and give it to Hope Not Hate. Um, but um, They're coming for you. The, yeah. <laughs> Um, he used to do that on the back benches. He used to lie down. Oh, it's not he? a new thing. Oh, it, really? So yeah, all no. that changed was he now had to be he on the front bench? He was just on the front bench. And I just think he just he thought he could get away with it. And it, it just is so bad. And I think he probably deeply regrets it. Because it's just it's so arrogant. It's so easy to paste a terrible narrative over the top of that picture. Or um, a meme, as I believe yeah, people call there's it. been some... Amazing ones. I love that there was the guy who was just resting his head and and stroking his chest. I saw some relatively pornographic ones, which were (laughs) absolutely hilarious. I could cry. Some of them were so funny. My brother has basically set up a WhatsApp group for our family to send Jacob Rees-Mogg memes. Have you spoken to him since he has ascended to the lofty heights of the cabinet? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
talk to him. I mean, you bump into each other in the corridors, and actually, it is thing... like school, isn't it? <laughs> it is exactly like school. Um, but um, one thing I would say for Jacob in being in the position of leader of the house is that when he says he's going to do something, he will do it. So I asked him a question about the domestic abuse bill and the money that was meant to come for refuge, and he has already. He said, "I don't know the answer to that, but I'm going to try and get you an answer because you, what you're saying seems right." to me um, and he has already written off to the minister on my behalf and already sent a letter to me and I'd never had that before when somebody said can I write to you about that that has literally never happened before so I think well, he so might a letter came through the yeah, internal so, system so I think he might actually run what would be deemed as a not very progressive but tight ship this looks nice so I think this is our, our crispy rabbit oh, that's yeah. turned up with fregola, which is a kind of grain and uh, some sweet corn. sweet corn there's some yeah. sweet corn in there Jess Phillips uh, with dandelion, we got some uh, freshly shaved truffle, and we got a sweet corn and truffle risotto, and here we got the fregola with uh, grilled seps, pickled onion, and breadcrumbs. Pickle, pickled onions and dandelions, that's uh, uh, amazing. Thank you. Oh, dandelions are quite nice. They taste like, um, what's that one that we call a different name to in France? Andive. Andive. What do we call it? We call it Andive. No, we don't. We call it something else. We call oh, it chicory. chicory. Except we're all very middle class now, so we all call it Andy. Do we all call it Andy? What's your involvement with the leader's office? Very little. I don't have that much to do with them. I mean, I have more to do with them than most, I think, because... But not when I say them, not Jeremy Corbyn. It's not like we're hanging out together very often. Uh, When was the last time you had an actual conversation with Jeremy Corbyn? um, When the UKIP uh, candidate was doing all the stuff about raping me, Jeremy Corbyn's office called me into his office to see if I was all right. Um, and what what could we do, what could be done about it, sort of thing? Uh, as as did the then Home Secretary Sajid Javid. So um, you know that was the last time I had a conversation. It had been about a year since I'd had another conversation with him. I text him occasionally, uh, but he very rarely texts me back. But sometimes when I feel like you know he needs to know the feeling in the country or the party, I will just let him know. Not in an it's not, it made it sound like you need to know this man. It's just like you know I really feel that this is the right decision. And, I'm sure he gets those messages from lots of members of Parliament. And now a word from our sponsor, which in this case is me. I've got a new book out. It's called My Last Supper, One Meal, A Lifetime in the Making, in which I attempt to answer the one question I've been asked most often, what would my last meal on earth be? I go out in search of the ingredients. It does include pig. And I tell the stories behind them. It's available now in hardback, ebook, and audio formats. And I'm also on tour with a live show based on the book. For tickets and info, visit jrayner.co.uk. And now back to Out to Lunch. What do you think of the. Rabbit? I thought it was delicious, but I'm really. In, I'm basically like anything with pickled onions in. I feel that they add to almost anything. So I really like this uh, pickled onion. Gratin. Gratin with thingy. Seps. Right. I can truly recommend the Pompadour. The third one. The what? The, pa- egg- sorry, the last one. Oh, okay. Uh, fresh Eggy bread. bread. Eggy, Eggy bread. bread. So homemade brioche soaked in vanilla custard. Mm, and then that's nice. And then finish on the pan. Delicious. One of the best dessert we have. On oh, the my dessert. gosh. You, you really are pushing it. Is it about to go off? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it's sugar-free. That's some... No, if you, I mean, I, I usually take a recommendation because I don't know anything. You know, I think that people who make food know more about it than me. Do you like meringue? I love meringue. Right, so the Green Gage Pavlova is on. Okay. And I think we... we you say Pavlova. Pa- pa- I say Pavlova. Pavlova. Yeah, I think you're probably Pavlova. right. Pavlova. Pavlova, Pavlova. <laughs> and the Pamper do. Everything with a P. Uh, yeah, Pavlova P. and a Pamper uh, uh, 
In fact, almost everything has got a pea in it. You make a lot of pea-related food. Yeah. <laughs> Perfect, thank you. Would thank you. Would like you. some coffee or tea with your dessert? Can I have a cup of tea? English tea is fine? Yes. Yes, English tea. Uh, a large espresso, please. Yes. Double espresso. So I've made such a, a steaming mess of the tablecloth <laughs> that Peter has, has laid uh, a towel across in front of me. But it's so, not even like, um, you know, like in a place like this, you might think it would be like sort of white linen, but it is actually like the kind of tea towel. My number's a dinner lady. No, I think it it's Peter's is, working with what he's got, frankly. It's, right like a tea, it's like a dinner lady's tea towel. And what about the value of trauma in your own life to driving you on to what you do? I mean, do? I'd rather not have had any. Uh, um, but, yeah, the, the uh, various points of trauma, whether losing my mum um, from cancer when I was relatively young, by modern You were in your 20s, when I was you? in my 20s when she died. Um, because I had my kids young. I already had my kids, so at least you got to meet them. And my brothers can't say the same, unfortunately. And my one of my brothers has, like, got married and I've been elected. The only time my dad ever rang me and said, I wish your mum was here to see this, was the day that Thatcher died. <laughs> I was on the edge of my seat there. You know, if only your mum had lived to see this. You know, 100 metres butterfly by one of your boys. No. It's a school play. Maybe you standing up in the house. I remember ringing him. I was like, "Have you heard your news? The news?" And he was just like, "Just wish, wish your mum was here." <laughs> so that gives you a bit of an idea of what they're like. Um, this is your second book. It's yep. been truth to power. The first oh, gosh, one I'm like an author. has. But you're an author now. <laughs> you have two ISBN numbers to your name, possibly three. <laughs> Uh, your, your first book has been optioned... It has. ..for film by... Is it Red Productions? It is. ..which is the company that Russell T Davis made years and years That's through. correct. So, I mean, obviously, I don't know where that... Where's that at? Do you know? Uh, yes. Uh, 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 it takes an awfully long time. It does take a very, very long My time. My God, I had absolutely no idea about A, book world, B, TV world. It takes mm. ages. Uh, so it was optioned, it's been optioned for about a year and they are just putting, I don't know why, how much I'm allowed to say, uh, but there is no people writing the screenplay currently for it to be put onto the TV and they're talking to the channels, is are that they, the thing they, that they, they do? They, then they're going to talk to the channels. Channels, yeah. Um, so there is uh, two questions. Uh -huh. The first one is, who would you like to play you? I get asked this question all the time. Um, I don't like to be obvious, but fuck uh, it. No, no, no. I mean, actually, no one I think has ever asked me publicly. But this is me and my friends talk about it. All oh, you've cast the time. it. Or, we've been casting this since we were twelve. All right. <laughs> so you? When I was twelve, yeah. Courtney Love. I wanted Courtney Love to. I think when I was about fourteen, Erin Brockovich came out, and so we all decided that we were like, who's going to be us in the Erin Brockovich yeah. film of our own life? And it was Courtney Love. Then now, I would say Vicky McClure. Oh, nice Just choice. because she's, like, really classy. Yeah. And good at a regional accent. And Tom? Uh, <laughs> You've done this, you see. You've worked out exactly who you want to this play is, Tom. The thing is, is, I know that I think that Tom should be played by somebody... Um, it'd have to be dark, but when I asked, like, my, my husband's very sort of dark-haired and brooding... Um, but when I asked him, yeah. he said he thinks that really specifically... Now, my husband is a white man. Yes. Um, he wants to be played by Idris Elba. He, well, I, that I'd be happy with. I actually think that that would be a good fit for him to be played by Idris Elba. He specifically wants to be played by 
Wesley Snipes <laughs> in Demolition Man. <laughs> it's my husband, who's a lift engineer from Birmingham, has never lived anywhere else, but thinks that Wesley Snipes, specifically in Demolition Man, just really gets him. <laughs> we have the Greenwich Pavlova with Greenwich compote and a Greenwich sorbet. Oh. And here we got the Pampadour, which is our yeah. homemade brioche, soaked in vanilla. Pasta. You love this. And it's served with vanilla ice cream. Excellent. Enjoy. Thank you very much. It's not It's not like eggy bread your nan would make. No. I just cut, oh, yeah. oh, my, look at this. Oh, look. I don't, I don't know if I'm doing the right thing here, but this bread has a... It's gone, like, oh, brioche man. in the middle. Looks delicious. <laughs> well, it does, it does need a moment, is the one thing I'd, I'd question, whether it actually it ends with you being elected to the House. I don't know. I don't know how it or works. Or you turning up at the gates of Downing Street with a bazooka, blowing <laughs> them off their hinges, storming the door and going... Well, you, you said that. What is really funny is whenever I watch any <laughs> disaster film and always, you know, in the bit where it goes around the world and everything dies, always it's the House of Commons that gets blown up. And I'm constantly Big watching these, so these films and I'm like, oh, I just died. <laughs> <laughs> it's like you're really it's in all the story. About you, isn't it? <laughs> That's exactly what my husband said. Maybe you weren't there that day, Jess. It's not all about you. Except this lunch has been all about you, and it has been an utter joy. And I think that this is the point at which I say, Jess Phillips, MP, thank you for letting me take you out to lunch. Thanks for taking me out for lunch. It's been good, isn't it? I'm not going on a date. I've never been on a date in my life. Have you not? Never, ever. If you're eager for more, you can find a generous helping of episodes wherever you get your podcasts. And if you could give us a five-star review and share us about, it'll help other greedy souls to join the lunch club and make me love you. Out to Lunch is a Something Else and Jay Rayner production. The music was written, arranged and performed by Jay Rayner and Robert Rickenberg. The mix engineer was Josh Gibbs. The assistant producer was Rosie Marotra. The producer is Selena Ream and the executive producer is Darby Doris. Additional production is from Steve Ackerman. Next time, rock star come broadcaster, it's the lead singer of the rock band Elbow, Guy Garvey. My favourite one was Richard Hawley's and in between his laughter... I heard him say, There's chocolate fucking argin dash all over the ceiling, you cunt! <laughs> <laughs>